Please turn your Bible to Luke 22 today. Today's passage is on page 829 in the Bible under the seat near you. And if you're new to the Bible, the large numbers are chapters, the small numbers are verses. And today we're looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38. And we encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout the course of the sermon, if possible, uh, which helps follow along and helps see where we're getting the ideas we're talking about as well. Last time I preached, we saw Jesus and his disciples uh, together for the Last Supper, and Jesus taught about what was coming in the next uh, day for him, what he was going to be accomplishing by his death. He was going to be bringing about the new covenant uh, promised in the Old Testament. And our passage today is the remainder of what happened at that Last Supper before Jesus' crucifixion. Luke is writing this book to give an accurate account of what happened in the life of Jesus and uh, what he said in his earthly ministry. He's doing all this, he tells us in the first couple verses of the book, for the benefit of a man named Theophilus, but obviously then for our benefit as well, seeking to set in order, give an orderly account of the life and teaching of Jesus, uh, essentially probably answering some questions or some doubts in Theophilus' life. And from a human perspective, Luke is trying to convince his readers of the truthfulness of what they had heard about Jesus' life and ministry. This is important for us because we believe that we are alive for the purpose of following Jesus well as the Lord of our lives. And we follow him best when we know what he said and what he told us what to do and what he did and what he's going to do now and in the future. And so that's what Luke is all about. And we're coming down the, the final stretch here, the final couple of chapters of this book. So our task is to understand what God has said through Luke. And we seek to do that one passage at a time. Some passages are longer than others, as you've probably noticed. Sometimes we take a whole chapter, sometimes a very small section. But our hope is that each time you hear one of us preach here at Brainerd, that you can walk away and say, yeah, that was exactly what that passage was about. And I see that it is true for me and affects the way that I live today, in other words. So please follow along as I read Luke 22, verses 24 through 38. Let me just clarify what I just said about true for me. I don't care whether you think it's true for you. It is true for you. I'm just saying it, it applies to you. That's what I meant to say by that. And I just got nervous that somebody's going to come and make a beeline for me about being postmodern and all this other stuff afterwards. So all that to say, let's go on to the passage. Let's just go with what God says here. Luke twenty-two twenty-four through 38. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. About 13 years ago, I was getting ready for uh, thyroid surgery. It turns out I had thyroid cancer. And as part of that, I was meeting with the surgeon one afternoon. I believe it was in January or so. So we had winter coats on in the doctor's office, even though it was probably warm in there. I just say that because as the surgeon started to go into the details of the surgery, he got a little graphic about like what happens in a surgery, and uh, my wife passed out because she was still wearing her winter coat, and it was a very warm moment at the time, and just the, the, the weight of what was going to be happening to me kind of hit her and quickly fell over, and uh, it was a very interesting moment in that doctor's office. All that to say, why do you think the doctor went into such graphic detail about the surgery I was going to be having a couple of weeks later? Like, what benefit could there possibly be to saying, here's what I'm going to do, here's what's going to happen afterwards, here's what recovery is going to be like, and so forth. What's the benefit there? The benefit is we do better when, generally speaking, when we know what's going to happen to us. When there's some orderly sense of this is, you shouldn't be surprised that this is what's going to happen. This is why people buy in droves books like what to expect when you're expecting or what to expect the first year of marriage or what to expect at your first job or on and on. People want to know what's going to happen to them. The disciples were no different from that. And Jesus understood this human impulse to want to know what's coming. And so what Jesus does in this passage here is he describes what's going to happen to the disciples even over the next few minutes and hours and days. He's looking very short-term here, but he also casts his eyes and the disciples' eyes way down in the future as well to try and give the disciples the sense of everything that's happening is completely in my control. And you have nothing to fear, but you do have the responsibility of trusting the wisdom and grace of Christ. And so that should be our response as well, that when we know that Jesus knows everything, and he prepares us for what's going to come in our lives, we then should respond by trusting his wisdom and his grace. This is the right response for us as his people. So what does Jesus tell his disciples would happen? We have three sections to this passage, verses 24 through 30. We see that you will serve, but later be exalted. You will serve, but later be exalted. And I will say that one of the challenges of this passage in particular is that clearly some of the material here was very specific to those disciples at that time. And so we don't want to assume that every last detail of this passage is about us. You understand the distinction that the Bible was written for us, but not about us? I think that's a super important distinction. It's for our benefit. The New Testament repeatedly tells us The Old Testament was written for our our benefit. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is always about us. So there are going to be some sections here where you think, I don't really see how this directly ties into my life. You know, I'm not one of those early disciples. 
But I still think we can see some uh, very helpful applications for our lives, even though this passage is not specifically about us, but it is for us. Now, you notice in verse 24 here, as we see that, that Jesus is teaching them that these men have the responsibility of serving and then later being exalted. Verse 24 says, a dispute also arose. Now, let's just pause there and back up one sentence or so, back to verse 20, let's go back to verse 22, and see on what heels this dispute is arising. For the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them. So let's just get this straight. Jesus says, I'm about to go die. And they start arguing. This would be, I mean, this is totally tone deaf. This is like going to a funeral and in that funeral, in the, in the crowd at the funeral, there's a politician there. And he says, I just, I'm here today to say how sad I am about the loss of so-and-so. And while we're here, let me just tell you that there's an election coming up and you should totally vote for me and here are the reasons why. And he just gives like a sales pitch on the spot. That would be really inappropriate at that moment. And that's what it feels like is happening here. Jesus says, I'm about to die. And the disciples start arguing about, first of all, who's going to betray him? And then second of all, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? This is totally tone deaf. I think it's possible to kind of put ourselves in their shoes and imagine what's going on here. So for one, they've just been asking in verse 23, which one is going to be who's going to betray Jesus? Can you imagine a scenario in which you go from that question to who's going to be greatest? It's probably like one guy sitting next to the other at this dinner table saying, it's not you, is it? Because I know it's not me. Because, I mean, I'm going to be sitting at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father, you know, in the, the, the position of prestige and influence and authority and honor. So it's definitely not me. And somebody else is going to be like, what are you talking about? I'm that guy. I'm going to be the one who's in the position of honor. And before you know it, Jesus is probably sitting there like, how did I get these specific guys to help me in this particular moment? And so it's not terribly hard to imagine how the conversation could degenerate into a situation where they're arguing with each other about this. But I do want to urge us from this to resist foolish disputes in our congregation. I'm not saying not to have conversations, not to have hard conversations. I just prayed few minutes ago that we would have hard conversations, that we wouldn't fear man even in those conversations. But sometimes we as Christians argue about such trivial matters, minor theological issue or the way the website looks or any number of other really tedious details. And we need the Lord's grace to be flexible and to love others more than we love being right. Who among us does not want someone to say, oh yeah, you're right? To the point that sometimes we might say that to our spouse, like, can you just say that one more time? Because it's been a while since I've heard you say that. I've heard people saying things like that before. Uh, But all that to say, we need to be willing to say, I love you more than I need to be right in this situation. And these disciples clearly were not getting that message. So on what basis do the disciples have this dispute about who's going to be the greatest? Maybe it had something to do with who had worked the most miracles or who had been present at a particularly important moment in Jesus' life. Like, well, you know, only a couple of us were at the transfiguration, so it's got to be one of us who's the most important. 
So who knows exactly on what basis they were arguing about this, but they were trying to prove that they were in the inner circle, that they were especially valuable to Jesus. But what Jesus says instead is rather than arguing about who's going to be the greatest, you actually demonstrate who's the greatest by who has the dirtiest towel at the end of the day, by who has washed the most feet. And really, John, the Gospel of John, has a very extended section here that none of the other Gospels have that probably happened about this moment in the conversation where Jesus got down and washed the disciples' feet. You could look at a resource called a uh, Harmony of the Gospels to see how different passages between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John relate to each other. And it's about this point where Jesus gets down and starts washing Peter's feet. And so, again, the person with the dirtiest towel wins is essentially what humility, what humble service in the kingdom of God looks like. And so if you're not a Christian and you hear this idea that, no, it's really not about climbing the ladder and getting higher and and pushing other people down below us in kind of a dog-eat-dog world. That's not how things work in the church. And maybe it's surprising to you to hear this because maybe you've had bad experience with Christians or people who have called themselves Christians. But this idea of serving other people is simply a way of following what Jesus did while he was on earth and doing what he said we should do. So when we, we read of Paul in Philippians 2 saying that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. We are to humble ourselves, looking on the needs of others rather than ourselves. And the reason we do that, he says, is because that's what Jesus did. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And so what we need as God's followers, as the followers of Jesus, is to lead by serving and not worrying about whether you're being duly recognized. Like whether I'm getting the attention that I should get from showing up at the workday on Saturday from 9 to 2 as an example. Uh, I don't need to show up so that people think I'm valuable. I show up because I want to serve people. And if you don't show up, it's totally fine. We're not going to judge you on that. I'm just simply saying we don't do things to get other people's attention and approval. And so people recognize how valuable we are. Of course, we should encourage people. We should thank people. We should... Uh, give thanks for the ministry they have for us, but we don't live for those kinds of praise from other people. And if we are to be servants in our homes and in our workplaces and here in the church, we need to realize and assume that no task is below us. There's nothing that is, is too menial, too dirty, so nasty that I could never get involved in that task. So we honor God by serving other people, by getting our hands dirty, sometimes this means that we change somebody else's kids' diapers. Sometimes it means that we take the trash out or mop the floors or wash the dishes or any number of other menial tasks, and there's none of that that any of us should be willing to do to serve one another. We honor God by serving other people. We expose the beauty of the gospel by not assuming that someone else will take care of that nasty job or annoying task. Christ humbled himself, and we can follow his example in this way as well. When Jesus says in verse 26 that the greatest among you should become as the youngest, what comes to your mind when you think of this older and younger distinction? Who should be honored as opposed to who should be of less importance? I think of the British monarchy. And you have people like Prince William and Prince Harry. And as far as Prince Harry is concerned, 
He doesn't want, as far as I can understand, I don't really follow the tabloids, British tabloids, like, haha, I've got plenty of other things I'd rather read. But it does seem like there's some controversy because now he's what, like the fifth in line to become the president or president king? Basically the same thing, I suppose. What would have to happen is Prince William and his three children would all have to die at the same time, basically, before Prince Harry could even come back on the scene and be important in the British family, uh, the British monarchy, again, the royal family. So imagine Prince William saying, you know what, Harry, I've had all the praise my life because I just happened to be born a couple of years before you did. I'm going to let you take the crown. You can be the next king. That would be unheard of, for one thing. Um, but this is what Jesus has in mind, is that the person who you wouldn't expect to be the servant is willing to get down and say, you know what, you are more important than I am. You deserve to be served. This is what Jesus means by the older would serve the younger. Ultimately, Jesus is telling his disciples that position Christians think about position differently than the world does. Let's put it that way. Christians think about climbing the corporate ladder differently than the world does. The world says you've arrived when you've gotten the letters after your name, like Eric Brown, comma, CEO, or any number of other uh, abbreviations. You've been given a bigger office or a bigger salary or more responsibility, and Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. That stuff doesn't matter. And if you want to read other parts of the Bible that talk about this, just go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, how does it really affect you if in the end you're going to die just like everybody else is going to die? Does it really matter to you that somebody else cleaned up after you instead of you cleaning up after them, so to speak? But Jesus simply says, don't worry about worldly evaluations of your position and your status and your responsibility. And this is why we as a, why any healthy church needs biblically defined deacons. What is a deacon? A deacon is simply someone who serves. And I'm so thankful that while we have three deacons who do a wonderful job, we also have many people who are functioning as deacons already, whether they're actually called that or not. And I will tell you, I truly can say this with a clear conscience. There is nothing here that I am unwilling to do. I'm happy to help clean the bathrooms and mop the kitchen floor and whatever else. But I also want to tell you from Acts 6, you would rather have deacons doing those kinds of tasks so that the elders, the pastors, go by the same name in the New Testament, can give themselves, as the way that we have in Acts 6, to the ministry of word and prayer. That's the job of an elder. And the job of a deacon is to serve, in the case of Acts 6, kind of the prototype for deacons there, it was serving tables. So that instead of the elders doing that, they were able to say, here's what the Word of God says, and here's how you need to live in light of what God says. And the deacons are doing the -the behind-the-scenes work so that the Word can be proclaimed, so that the people can be prayed for. And so praise the Lord for deacons who serve with that title or without that title for servants who uh, love to take care of the practical and necessary tasks of our church life. In verse 28 here, as Jesus tells the disciples that they are going to need to serve as opposed to being uh, given great praise now, serve now and be exalted later. In verse 28, he says, 
uh, he, he commends them. He says, you've been with me through my trials. What would the trials be that Jesus is talking about? Probably what we've been reading chapter after chapter of the Jewish leadership absolutely hating Jesus and at various times trying to kill him. Remember back all the way back in chapter 4, they led him to a cliff and they wanted to push him down. And then in one of the weirdest or most beautiful providential you know, silences in the book of Luke, it says Jesus passed through their midst and escaped. We have no idea what happened there. That's the kind of thing you can ask God when you get to heaven. One of my kids recently told me that when he gets to heaven, his first question is, how many hairs do I have? I was like, that's your question? Like, there are so many other questions. But So Luke 4, how did Jesus pass through the crowd without them throwing him off the cliff? We have no idea. But it's a beautiful, silent statement there that God was going to preserve the life of Jesus until just the right moment. And so Jesus here commends the disciples for staying with him through thick and thin, through all the animosity and the hatred that he's been experiencing and and close calls as a result of the Jewish leadership. So he commends them in verse 28, and in verse 29 and 30, he rewards them. What's the reward going to be for these disciples? You've stayed with me, faithfully, and so I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. He talked about this back in chapter 12 as well. You could go go back and search there. I assign to you a kingdom so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You get the picture here? You're going to serve now. You're not going to be recognized now. You're not going to be appreciated now. But later, there is great reward for enduring the difficulties of the Christian life. And we too wait patiently for future reward. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. That verse came to mind when I read this about you having a kingdom and sitting on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Exactly what that's going to look like, I don't know. There's not a lot in the Bible about that. But I do know that 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we'll reign with Him. Revelation 5.10, you've been made, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I think, for a quick biblical theological summary, I think this is basically taking Genesis 1 and 2 ideas of God putting people on the earth to take care of the earth, to reign on the earth. I think that's what Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us God did in putting people here. And I think what Revelation 5 is basically saying that's going to come to pass, even though right now we've totally blown it because of the fall, it's going to happen in the end. They shall reign on the earth, Revelation 5.10 says about the people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is in verse 9. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, today to wait for the future reward, not living for it now. You may never be recognized for the fact that you so faithfully have taken care of a loved one. You may never now be recognized for the fact that you have week after week helped prepare the Lord's Supper elements or cleaned the church or salted the parking lot when it's been icy and all these things that just kind of get glazed over, unappreciated, and just say, my reward is the joy of Christ, not somebody patting me on the back and saying, you did a good job. And also from this, we should be convinced of how history ends. Jesus is looking toward a day when his kingdom is firmly established, and he's not worried about Russia or China or North Korea or 
United States or any other power throwing off His sovereign plan for all of time. And so we as Christians can take it to the bank that what the Bible says is going to happen in the future is what's going to happen in the future. There are parts of that that are less clear than others. But we can go to the last two chapters and it's pretty clear. Sin is gone. Judgment is gone. Suffering is gone. Death is gone. That sounds like a really good situation. And this is what is promised. For those who, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. So, here in this first section, 24 through 30, you will serve now, but be exalted later. In verses 31 through 34, you will be tempted, but preserved. You will be tempted, but preserved. So, it appears that Jesus kind of abruptly shifts topics here. Perhaps there was a little bit more of conversation before Jesus went into this subject, but he calls Peter, here he calls him Simon. And he says his name twice, which just shows he really wants his attention and he's probably very warm and compassionate in the way he says this to him. Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What is going on here? So for one, the other, only other passage that comes to my mind when I think of, of this is Job 1 and 2. And you can go and read those chapters and you hear about Satan approaching God and saying, you know the reason Job loves you is because you've given him such a good, easy life, right? And God says, okay, I will show you that he will continue to walk with me. He will continue to trust me and say, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I will show that to you. Just don't kill him. That's what God gives permission to to Satan to do. That's the only parallel that I have, so I assume something like that is going on here. But I don't think we should you know, universalize this and assume that in every temptation, Satan's getting God's specific permission for each individual. I just don't think that that's uh, likely. But all that to say, Satan wanted to ruin Peter. Actually, Satan wanted to ruin all the disciples. And I'll show you why in a second. But I think we can also generalize this part and say Satan hates you and wants to ruin your life. Satan wants to ruin this church Satan wants to ruin your home, your testimony. He hates you. And I have, I've heard of various studies where people have said, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in Jesus? And what's amazing is the number of people who say they believe in Jesus, but who also said they don't believe in Satan. What does this first tell us about Jesus? He believed in Satan. So if you believe in Jesus, you should believe in Satan too, that there is truly evil, an evil person who rebelled against God and wants to destroy you because of your love for Christ. That's what Satan is doing here where he demands to have you. And you'll notice, perhaps you have a footnote here. The word you there, Satan demanded to have you, is plural. So he's saying to all the 12 disciples, he wants to ruin all of you. But you'll notice then, perhaps again, if you have a footnote, uh, various translations reflect this in certain ways. But I have prayed for you. That's singular in verse 32. He's saying that specifically about Peter. I have prayed that you will be able to endure the evil one's attacks, the fiery darts of the evil one that we learn about in Ephesians 6, the roaring of the lion that we read about in 1 Peter 5. Peter, I'm going to protect you I have prayed for you. And you might say, man, it would be awesome if I knew that Jesus prayed for me too. Did you know that the Bible tells us that? 
that Romans 8.34 and Hebrews 7.25 talk about the intercession of Christ to say nothing of an entire chapter in John 17 and of this concept here in Luke 22. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. What he doesn't say to Peter is, you're not going to sin at all. You're not going to deny me. Peter responds by saying, oh, I'm going to go with you to prison and to death. I'm ready. And Jesus is like, "Mm, yeah, it's dark outside right now before the sun comes up. That's what it means before the rooster crows. Before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. Peter was probably just totally flabbergasted by this and possibly even offended based on what we know about Peter. But Jesus had to say things to him like, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. That's not great. You don't really want Jesus to say that to you. But here Jesus is saying, even though I know, so here we see what Jesus is aware of at this point in his life, even though I know you're going to deny me, I also know the second part of it, that you're not going to utterly deny me. You are going to come back. And here's what I want to tell you, Peter. When you come back, minister to your other brothers who are going to be in great despair themselves because of their failure to follow me in this darkest of hours. That's actually a beautiful message. Yes, you're going to fail, but you're going to come back. That's what he means by when you turn again. That's repentance. When you come back and you acknowledge that you have dreadfully sinned, and and failed in this way by denying me. When you do, come back and hug your brothers, the fellow disciples, and tell them we can still follow Christ. We will still love him. We will still go to the death for him as many of these disciples did. Did you know, Christian, that you minister better because of the trials that the Lord has brought you through? Minister better because of the trials and temptations you have experienced. Even the messy imperfect, really blew it moments of your life can be used, can be redeemed for God's glory. So you can help others as they walk through their own trials and temptations. And so I want to urge you to minister to others out of your experience. Be willing to tell them, yeah, I had a terrible situation. I really blew it. I sinned dreadfully. I want to encourage you to acknowledge the reality and power of Satan, that he does hate those who love Christ. There is, as John tells us in 1 John 3, those who love God and those who follow Satan, and there's no in-between. And so uh, acknowledge that reality, the, the tension that we live in in this age. Give thanks for Christ's intercession that he prays for our souls as well as he did here for Peter. We know that from Hebrews and Romans. Take heed lest you fall. That's from 1 Corinthians 10. Don't assume that you're above temptation, that you are finally past that one life-altering sin. You're never going to go back to it again. You probably need people around you to hold you up and to support you. And pray for one another and for your elders. Satan would love to destroy our church. And he can do that in a variety of ways, but one way he can do that is just shooting flaming darts at your heart and you being unprotected for it because you haven't let anybody in into your life. If you truly are God's child, know that temptation may smack you upside the head. And it may be really discouraging, but it will not defeat you. He will hold fast to you. He will never let you go. And so hold fast to that truth yourself. So you will be tempted, but preserved in verses 31 through 34. And finally, you will be opposed, but you will succeed in your mission. That's 35 through 38. 
You will be opposed, but will succeed in your mission. Here in this third section, Jesus recalls for his disciples a previous time when he sent them out on a mission. This goes back to chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. And basically the same thing happened, just a larger group of people in chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. So you can go back and read those where Jesus told these followers to go out and minister to the sick and help the poor and all kinds of different physical hands-on ministry. But he specifically told them, don't worry about taking supplies with you. I'll provide for all your needs. Here the tone is changing because the circumstances are changing. Jesus is about to die. That's why he quotes Isaiah 53 here. So he says, I'm going to send you out again. That part's implied in the passage. He doesn't actually say those words, but he says, I want you to recall when I sent you out before. What did you need? I gave you everything. You lacked nothing. You still lack nothing. And that's true for all of us today who follow Jesus. But essentially in verse 36, he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Take it where? On the mission. You're going to go out and you're going to preach the gospel. This is what he tells them in Matthew 28. This is what he tells them in Luke 24, kind of the the great commission passages of the New Testament. He's saying, "You're you're about to go out. I'm about to die. And after I rise and I'm ascended and all this, that he kind of packs into this one little sentence of its fulfillment is found in me. He essentially then says, you're going to go out and you're going to preach this word. You're going to go far. You're going to go into dangerous places. So take what you need. This is what we tell missionaries to do today. Be well prepared for the the tasks ahead of you. I think probably the one question that people might might ask about this is, well, what's this deal about the swords? Like, this sounds very strange. And I think essentially what we need to realize is when you read the book of Acts, for instance, you read about people going through really bad circumstances and really dangerous circumstances. If, if Jesus is saying, go on a long mission, go out, you know, go hundreds or thousands of miles to preach the gospel somewhere else, you need food, money, clothes, which includes sandals he talks about here, and something to protect yourself with because you're going to be sleeping outside sometimes. What he was saying earlier, excuse me, earlier when he said you don't need money and clothes because people are going to take care of you. He was saying like other people are going to appreciate you because Jesus is doing amazing things and if you're associated with him, you're going to be appreciated. What he's saying now is the opposition is getting stronger. Like the temperature is getting hotter and hotter and people aren't going to want you around because you're associated with Jesus. So you're going to need more resources. That's what he means by these swords. He clearly does not mean, this is so that you can go to battle for me. How do we know that? Because there's two swords, not like 20,000. And even that, you've got the whole Roman army right there. And then secondly, if you want to argue with that part, that's fine. Just go down to like verse 51, which we'll look at next week. When, I think it's Peter, if I remember correctly, chops off a guy's ear, he's like, stop, this isn't what we're talking about. And that's what Jesus says when he says, it's enough. He's not saying, oh yeah, those two swords, that'll be plenty. That's not what he means. What he means is enough of this crazy talk. You guys still don't get it. You're still hard-headed. You're still stubborn. You aren't seeing what I'm telling you. They're assuming right now we need to be well-armed because we're going to go to death for Jesus by fighting these bad guys. That is not what he's saying. Be ready to go on the mission that I have assigned for you of making disciples, even though it's going to be dangerous at times. That's what he's saying by saying, take two swords with you. You can just read about the book of Acts and Paul's dangerous journeys to kind of get more of a sense of that. 
So the trajectory of opposition to Jesus is only going to intensify further. And the reason they're going to go on their mission to other lands is because Jesus is about to be crucified, fulfilling the prophecy that's quoted here from Isaiah 53, verse 12, the prophecy of the righteous sufferer, where we read, He was numbered with the transgressors. That means that he hung between transgressors. When he was on the cross, he had sinners around him. It also means he was numbered with us. He took our sin. You cannot pay for your sin. You need someone else to die in your place so that you can be righteous before God. And Jesus took our sin. He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, And so the gospel is simply that when we put our trust in the perfect fulfillment of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ, obeying God's law perfectly, that then Jesus' righteousness gets credited to ourselves, to our own account. And he takes our guilt, which he paid for on the cross. What's beautiful is that even in that passage in, in Isaiah 50, I assume the disciples were very, very familiar with, the next line about he was numbered with the transgressors says, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Going back to what he had just said to Peter in the previous paragraph. So Christian, I want to encourage you when he says, remember back in the day you didn't lack anything? I just want to encourage you, you still lack nothing. If you are in God's hands, you have all you need. He will provide for everything that you need. It's not a, uh, a promise that he'll protect you from any kind of suffering that He will be with you. He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. He will comfort you by His rod and staff while you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you even in the presence of your enemies. Psalm 23 tells us. I think it's clear to us we do not know what's going to happen to us. Any one of us. Any one of us could die today. Any one of us could face terrible persecution for our faith in our lifetimes. And we don't know what's going to happen. And when we don't, we don't know how we're going to respond. But just as doctors try to prepare us, just as dentists try to prepare us, just as uh, teachers try to prepare us for what's going to come in a semester, we do better when we know what's going to happen. Jesus was very kind to tell us, you're going to need to serve, not be exalted yet. You're going to be tempted, but you will persevere. And you're going to be opposed, but the mission will continue. The mission will have success. Jesus knows what's going to come, and so we can trust him for his wisdom and his grace. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would give us great confidence in these words. We thank you for Jesus, for the fulfillment, the perfect fulfillment of passages like Isaiah 53, of him being laid down like a lamb, being slaughtered for our sins. How we praise you for this beautiful truth. And we pray that we would respond with humility and with gratitude and with love for one another, even as we take this supper together now, picturing the the last day when we will be in your kingdom, at your table, feasting in the house of Zion. May we rejoice in the love you've given us for one another and deepen it together today. In Christ's name, amen.